This message was recorded at Devoted Leaders, a leadership conference hosted by Christ Central. Christ Central is a family of churches served by an apostolic team led by Jeremy Simpkins. We work with over 275 churches in more than 25 nations and are part of the wider New Frontiers family. For more details about Christ Central, please visit ChristCentralChurches.org. Last year, uh, stepped into Martin's shoes, and Martin's <laughs> shoes are pretty big. Uh, Martin Charlesworth, who started and was the founder of Jubilee Plus, a uh, great charity that probably all of you know, that operates right across the United Kingdom, helping churches to engage with the marginalised, the poor, really equipping them and serving them with research, materials, training. And if you're not a partner church, by the way, of Jubilee Plus. Uh, my local church is a partner church with Jubilee Plus, and I would encourage all of you to become partner churches with Jubilee Plus. But in last April, a year ago, Natalie stepped into that role, and I'll let you pick up the story, because all heaven broke out, didn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah that's, that's exactly what happened, and that's, that's it. That's all. I feel quite far away, but hopefully this is all right. Uh, yeah, so um, thanks for coming to this seminar. This, so this is the first time I've spoken on leadership, and one of the reasons I wanted to do it was because I have found leadership, as the title of this seminar might indicate, a bit of a shock. Um, and this is so my background, not just even in Christian circles, but in my uh, last secular job, which was 10 years ago now, I kind of grew in leadership quite unexpectedly, quite surprisingly. I worked for an organisation where my job was to... Um, put out good news stories about crime. So that's a hard job to do. I did that. And that's all right. Come in, come in. You're welcome. Yeah. It's always one or two. <laughs> but yeah, my job was to put out good news stories about crime. And that's a really hard thing to do. And there were only about three people around the country who were doing it. And so it was really easy to become the expert at it. So I ended up getting, this sounds really fancy, believe me it wasn't, um, but I got commissioned by the Home Office and the Home Office would send me all over the country talking to different police forces, uh, local authorities and things like that as an expert in communicating good things about crime. And they even sent me to America. They sent me to speak at a conference in America and um, this conference was usually held somewhere like Florida or Seattle or um, LA, just really places you really want to go. The year they sent me, it was in Madison, Wisconsin. So, um, and I think even the fact you've all laughed at that, I've just now, if anyone hears this recording from Madison, Wisconsin, have just like alienated those people from, from my life, yeah. Um, but so I'm, I'm used to, in that sense, being a leader in the, you know, I was respected as an expert in my field. Like I say, it sounds grand, but there are only three people doing it, so it wasn't that difficult to become the leader in your field. And then in terms of church, I've been on my church leadership team uh, for ten and a half years now. Um, I'm in King's Church in Hastings. Uh, we've got a congregation in Hastings and one in Bexhill on the south coast. And uh, when I was brought onto the leadership team, I don't think anyone was still that clear whether I was a leader or not. And yet, nevertheless, I found myself on the leadership team. Um, and the first woman on the leadership team, I took that job on the strict understanding that it would only be for two years. Uh, like I said, that was ten and a half years ago, and I'm still there. And I work there two days a week, and I oversee all of our social action. So we've got about eight projects helping to lift people out of poverty or tackle various forms of injustice. And each of those projects has a leader, and I oversee the leaders of those projects. But then... Three days a week now, I work for Jubilee Plus, and I have the privilege of leading the organisation. 
But even there, with Jubilee Plus, I've been involved for over 10 years, almost since the very beginning. I think since about six months after Martin founded it, I got involved, joined the core team, grew in leadership. My job there was running communications. Um, so I used to be a journalist. So yeah, my job was running communications for Jubilee Plus. Started out basically editing Martin's blog once a week. So he would write a weekly blog, I would edit it and post it on a website. And that was kind of how I started, but grew in leadership, um, grew in opportunity. Different books that we wrote together then meant people started asking me to go and speak at their churches. Um, and I had more and more opportunities to lead different things. But if anyone had said to me that Martin would hand on the leadership to me, I wouldn't have thought that was uh, a reality. In fact, in 2020, uh, we'd come out of the first lockdown and Martin said to me, um, I'd like to meet with you face to face. I've got something I want to talk to you about um, that I'd need to talk to you about just me and you. And I thought, he's going to step down. He's probably going to give us about three years' notice. Because for some reason, I'd got it into my head that's what he was going to do if he ever did step down. He says he never said that. But um, in my head, I was like, he's definitely going to give three years' notice. But I was thinking, I wonder who he's going to tell me is taking over. And I wonder if he wants to talk to me face-to-face -face, because I'm not going to like it. And then, um, yeah, that was <laughs> which, which was true. And, it, you know, it was funny. Um, I think partly because of my background, you know, being from a working-class family, I've never really aspired to leadership. It's not really something that would have been in my vocabulary if I hadn't become a Christian. I've heard other Christians talk about aspiring to leadership and it being good to want to be a leader. But it's not really been something that's ever... You know, I didn't grow up as a kid thinking one day I want to be a leader. I wouldn't have even... I wouldn't have heard anyone talking like that until I became a Christian. And it, so it wasn't something I've aspired to. It wasn't something I've dreamt of. I've never in a million years would have imagined I'd end up leading a charity um, or being the primary leader of something. And so that in and of itself has been a bit of a shock to me. And when Martin first asked me, uh, would you like to take on the leadership? I spent an hour and a half telling him all the reasons why I shouldn't and why it couldn't be me. And then after an hour and a half, he said, do you feel called to it? And I said, yeah. And, <laughs> and I think anyone who's less polite than Martin would have said something like, well, that's an hour and a half of my life. I'm never getting back. But Martin's way too polite for that. So he just was like, OK, well, that's probably the bit that matters. Let's focus on, on that bit. So I guess I am an unlikely leader in that sense. I've been told many times in my Christian life that I'm not a leader. Um, and I think some people who probably saw all the ways in which that would have been accurate, and then sometimes it's just that they don't see other things about you that are maybe a bit different, maybe don't fit the mould of traditional leadership. I certainly don't have the background for it. Um, Martin and I talk about the fact that you know, he went to boarding school, he was well-travelled as a child, he uh, went to Oxford University. I always feel slightly nervous that I might have got that wrong and it might be the other one. I know people feel strongly about that, but I'm pretty sure it was Oxford. <laughs> thank you, thank you. Um, I, I keep thinking I should just say Oxbridge because then I'll get away with it. But anyway, um, whereas on, on paper, yeah, I certainly wouldn't look like um, someone you'd think would be have the fancy title of chief executive. Every time I hear that or see it written down, it still it feels weird to me. But I've done quite a bit of leadership training. So I've done four years of leadership training. I've done um, Andrew Wilson's leadership training, which when I did it, it started out in Eastbourne. It's now in Milton Keynes, and it's part of Catalyst, even though he's not part of Catalyst. Um, and I, so I've done two years on that. I've done two years on the New Ground Academy, which is the same as the Christ Central School of Leadership. 
So I've done four years of leadership training. I've been in church leadership for 10 years. Um, I've been in leadership capacity to some extent in Jubilee Plus for many years, definitely over half a decade. I've had leadership in a secular role, and yet I had no idea what was about to hit me when I took on the leadership of Jubilee Plus. It has been the biggest shock to me. You know, I can only really equate it to people have told me things like the gap between a maths GCSE and a maths A-level is huge, or the gap between a language GCSE and a language A-level. I mean, I haven't got A-levels in maths or languages, so I don't know. But for me, the gap between being a leader and being the leader, so to speak, has just been a complete and utter shock to me. And so what I want to share is some of the ways in which it's been a shock to me. Mainly I want to share them because every person I've had this conversation with who has been the leader of something or is the leader of something has gone, oh, yeah, it's like that, isn't it? Yeah. Oh, yeah. And I'm like, thank you then. It's, no one wanted to tell me that then. No one thought it would be a good idea to just give me a heads up. And um, maybe they don't tell you because you'd never do it. So I might be like, what's the opposite to empowering a group of leaders? Like disempowering. I might be, everyone might leave this and go, I'm never doing that then. But yeah, I'm hoping it'll be helpful. I'm hoping at least it'll be helpful so that if you experience some of the things that I'm talking about, you go, oh yeah, good, it's not just me. Um, and that if, for those of you who aren't yet maybe the, the primary leader in an organisation, if you become the primary leader and some of this stuff happens to you, then hopefully you'll go, oh, yeah, it's all right, this is normal, this isn't unusual, this doesn't mean I'm not called, it doesn't mean I've, I've not heard God. Because I think, for me, I've struggled massively with imposter syndrome this last 15 months or so. And partly it's been because I'm like, I didn't know it would be like this, I didn't know it would feel like this. And I thought, well, is it supposed to? And if it isn't, then what does it mean? What does it tell me about me? What does it tell me about my leadership capacity? Um, it's probably not that helpful to say it in case anyone on my team hears this. They probably know it already. But I've thought about quitting probably more times than I've ever thought about quitting anything else. Just because of the pressure of leadership has been such a, a shock to me. But I also want to tell you some of the things that I've put in place in the last 15 months. Some of them even relatively recently that I think are really helping me and are helping me to transition into this role. Um, helping is the operative word. I'm not there yet. I haven't arrived yet. This is very much a journey for me. In fact, you know, I said to Jeremy, this might feel like a bit of a counselling session for me because I might sit in a corner and rock at some point and, you know... But no, it's, it's been good and it's been a real learning experience. But I'm probably now going to tell you all the negative things before I get to what I've put in place and what has been good about it. So I think the first thing that really shocked me... Um, is just how tired I am. It's just the, the, I, I'm someone who probably always says I'm tired. That's one of the things my mum says about me. She's like, if I, she says, how are you? And I say, tired. She's like, you always say you're tired. But in the last 15 months, I've known a tiredness that I don't think I've ever experienced in my life before. Now, partly that might be because I don't have kids. So it's probably, you know, those of you with kids, it, that's probably more tired. But for me, the mental tiredness... The, the fact that at the end of each kind of working day, my brain feels exhausted in a way that I can't fully articulate. It's just that tiredness of thinking, physically I feel okay, but just I want my brain to be able to switch off. I literally want a switch where I can just say, stop thinking about anything, stop, stop having to operate, stop even having to decide what to have for dinner because I literally just want to switch, let my brain go to sleep even if my body is still active. So that has been a real surprise for me. And kind of that mental, emotional um, tiredness. Like I say, not particularly physical, just thinking, I don't know how I'm going to have the energy to face another day, just in terms of that, that, um, the exertion that it takes to, 
to make decisions and to be thinking all the time about what the next step is and to be trying to lead a team of people instead of just being worried about your own little area of responsibility. I think a lot of factors have been external. So one of the things that's been a massive shock to me is that overnight, um, it seemed that everyone had an opinion about me. So that I was not prepared for. That actually people have got an opinion about me and their opinion isn't, isn't static. So people's opinion of me, of whether I was a good successor or not to Martin, that was an immediate thing where, you know, some people came up and, and said, oh, you know, um, you know, really encouraging things like, um, we knew it would be you, we, we, we'd seen it. There's a lot of people who'd seen it before I had. Um, but even that comes with its own sort of pressure. And it's nice when people tell you that. It's nice that they've seen God at work in your life. But then there's also that element of, I really better not mess this up now. And then there were other people who just did say things like, um, well, you know, it'd be good to see how this pans out. <laughs> and <laughs> I mean, we're still seeing how it pans out. So <laughs> but yeah, so suddenly everyone having an opinion on you and that opinion changing. So it feels like, 15 months on, it still feels like every decision I make, people are watching to see how I'm doing as a leader, if I'm doing well or if I'm doing badly. Now, of course, most people are watching with a view to supporting and encouraging, but it's the eyes on you thing that I've found quite difficult. And in some ways, that's been one of the things that's most made me want to go and run away and hide. And it's been... It's been the, the really kind of sweet thing about that has been that my own relationship with Jesus has been, become much more about just what he thinks of me. I've been having to dig deep into Jesus, who do you say I am? You know, all the kind of foundational identity in Christ stuff that we know, but revisiting it and saying that actually it doesn't matter if 100 people or 200 people or whatever have got an opinion on me, actually, Jesus, the only opinion that counts is yours. The only opinion that matters is yours. And that's actually been a real sweetness to it, actually, of, of just finding my kind of security and my reassurance in him in deeper ways and newer ways and fresh ways than I ever have before. And, and that's been something I've had to dig deep into. I know he is uh, very eager to reassure me, but sometimes you have to press in for it, don't you? Because the voices around you are louder than the, the whisper of Jesus into your heart. So... That's been a, a, a joy, but coming out of a real pressure that I've felt. Um, the other side of that is that everyone wants your opinion. So I went from feeling like I often would force my opinion on other leadership teams, um, like my own church leadership team. I'd be sat there and I'd be really opinionated about something and very happy to express my opinion. And then suddenly you find everyone wants your opinion on everything. Like you can't check out of any conversation. Um, I joke with the, the team and with um, some of Jeremy's team and that, that I think I had more questions about sandwiches in my first month leading Jubilee Plus than I've ever had about sandwiches in my entire life. And I reached a point where I was just, I was so like trying to be godly when all I really wanted to say is, shut up about sandwiches. I don't care. I don't have an opinion. I don't. But you know, the minute they'd given the wrong sandwiches, I probably would have had an opinion. But that, that whole thing of suddenly actually you can't check out of any meeting because your opinion is wanted. So the worst thing, this is my first day in the leadership role of Jubilee Plus. I thought Jubilee Plus was going to be all about me casting this beautiful vision that the Lord would give to me and everyone would get caught up in it and we'd all run in the same direction. It would all be marvellous. My first three hours was a budget meeting 
And in this budget meeting, I mean, I, I was not full of the joy of the Lord, I'll be honest with you, but I was very focused because I knew it was really important that I paid attention because it's not my specialist area and I knew that I could get lost easily. So I was like really, you know, steely, determined, I will concentrate. I think I managed that for about two hours and I think I lost concentration for about two or three minutes. And in that two or three minutes, it came to an abrupt end when the finance director said, so are you all right if I change things like that? <laughs> Actually, I, I am able to think quite quickly, so it was quite good. I swerved and went to my operations manager and went, could you just share what you think about that and then I'll give my thoughts. And he realised what had happened and so he recapped in, in his thoughts um, what I'd needed to know. But did phone me straight afterwards and go, you didn't know what they were talking about, did you? <laughs> but to be fair, he could have he really got me in some trouble and he really helped me out of a hole. So yeah, the, the joy of vision casting actually becomes, you've got to have an opinion on everything, even the budget thing that you didn't quite understand and had kind of lost your attention. Um, I think it's also, when it comes to opinions, the, the thing that I found quite a struggle is that everyone in a meeting will have an opinion, especially if it isn't their area of expertise often, and everyone can express their opinion as forcefully as one another. So I would hear one opinion on something and go, yeah, yeah, okay, that's really persuasive. And then someone else would say the complete opposite, and I'm like, oh, that's quite persuasive. And then someone would say a third way I'd not even imagined was possible, and I think, hmm, that's quite persuasive. And suddenly you're confronted with all these really, really strong opinions. And you've got to decide which way you're going to go. And just that, again, um, I have experienced that as quite a pressure. Um, I've, I've been less sure of my own mind in this role than I ever have in my whole life. And if, if you'd asked anyone who's been around me prior to the last 15 months, does Nat know what she thinks, they'd have probably laughed and said, yeah, and she's not afraid to say it. But suddenly I found, oh, no, yeah, I think we'll go this way. Oh, no, actually, I think we might go that way. Oh, no, maybe we'll go this way. And... And that has been a real surprise to me as well, just something I've found quite, quite hard. It's really given me a fresh appreciation, actually, for leaders, though. I will say that. Particularly my lead elder, I had to go. I felt like I need to go and apologise to him. Because every meeting I've had with him for 10 years, I've been like, social action, social action, social action. This is the thing that matters. Why aren't you doing what I want? You kind of, we've got to go in this direction. And realising from my new role at Jubilee Plus, he gets that from every single person who meets with him about something different. And I had no idea what it was like to try and juggle that many people's primary care and concern in a way that makes them all feel valued. Are there going to be some tears? <laughs> but yeah, so um, I would say it's the first time in my life that I've really doubted my own opinions. Um, particularly having done well in my career, so to speak, for want of a better word, before um, working for the church and then doing all right in church leadership... Um, I've always been pretty sure of my opinions. Um, on, on anything I feel like I'm a specialist in, I haven't doubted my own opinions. I've been quite adamant that I'm right quite a lot of the time. And this is the humbling experience of God for me. Because suddenly in this role, I find that I doubt myself um, all the time. That I make a decision in my head maybe, and then two days later, I'm thinking, I don't think that's the right decision. And it's not necessarily that it's the wrong decision, it's just that I'm suddenly I can be um, swayed, even internally. There's not really... That's separate to the external pressions, pressures. Um, and that's been really weird. And I shared it with someone who's mentoring me the other day. And I said, I've never been so indecisive in, in all my life. I've never 
doubted my own opinion so much. And he said, it's because the buck stops with you. And I just hadn't seen it. I, I'd just been like, why am I suddenly so gone from being so opinionated to so doubtful and so decisive to so indecisive? And he said, it's because in the past, you could express your opinions as strongly as you liked, and ultimately, it wasn't your responsibility. And if someone took your opinion and it went well, you could take the credit. You could say, yeah, I was behind that. If someone took your opinion and it went badly, you could distance yourself a little bit because ultimately the buck stopped with them and not with you. Um, and if they didn't take your, opi your opinion and it went horribly wrong, you could just... I won't say I told you so. <laughs> but yeah, so... Um, I think also, though, it's partly because I've, I've had to make really difficult decisions. And again, I think if anyone had told me that, I might have shied away from the role. Decisions and conversations like, I'm not sure you're the best fit for the team at the moment. I think you were Martin's person. I'm not quite sure where I'm going. You're, you're the right fit. Those conversations, obviously it's more horrible for the person hearing it, but they're horrible to be the person saying it as well. And, and it's also when you're saying to someone... I think we're reviewing all of our activities because that's what happens under a new leader. You try and work out, is everything we're doing the way, what, what we think we should carry forward into the new season? And, and actually, that means you've got to say to some people, the bit of work that you're really passionate about, we're not going to do it anymore. And I've also been in situations where I've had to have conversations with people and say, I don't think you're in the right role. I don't think your skills are matching the job description you've got, so to speak. And so there's been a lot of difficult decisions. Um, and I've taken a lot of advice, which has been really helpful. But because I've been more indecisive than normal, I've sometimes made really quick decisions about things and then had to undo them. Which, so someone gave me some advice, which I think would have been brilliant advice for a lot of people. The advice was, don't chair your own meetings. Uh, because you'll be distracted by timekeeping, you'll be distracted by making sure the agenda's moving along, and you won't say, you won't cast vision into the kind of agenda items, if you like. So I thought that sounds like a really sensible idea. So I asked someone on the team to start chairing meetings for me. But what I realised is that I then felt that I couldn't steer in a different direction if I wanted to during the meetings. And I felt like if we weren't getting as far in a discussion as we needed to go, I couldn't really do anything about it without undermining the person in front of everyone, which I didn't want to do. So after a couple of times of doing that, I had to go back to that person and say, actually, do you know what? I'm going to chair the meetings again. And that's fine. And there's grace for you, especially when you're a new leader and you've said to the team, you've got to have grace for me. Um, and, and I have, to be honest, I've said that to the team. I was like, I'm going to ask you to be gracious with me and patient with me because I'm learning how to lead this team. And it's the first time I've led a team like this where, where the buck stops with me and I can't just defer to someone else and let them make the decision. I think it's also been the case that every decision feels more important or totally unimportant. So the decisions that I'm being asked to make either feel really, really important, like everything feels like it matters, or they feel like they don't matter at all, and there doesn't seem to be any middle ground. Whereas I think in most of my working life, I've felt like decisions sometimes feel important, sometimes don't, sometimes feel like they might be important, they might not be, time will tell. Whereas now it's been, for me, they're either one end of the spectrum or the other. I don't really know why that is. That's just something I've experienced. And by the way, all these things I'm sharing are things that I've shared with others who've said they found similar things. So some of them might be unique or, or not, not generalised for everyone, but hopefully a lot of them will, will make sense to you. Um, so a part of the decision-making, I found that I can't make decisions anymore in, in normal life. 
So if someone offers me two drinks and I, and I like them both, I literally don't want to have to decide. I've, I've just found that in this season, I'm sure this will come back to me, but if someone wants to go out for dinner, please pick. I don't care. Like Anything where I don't have to make a decision, please take that off me in this season because I feel like the decisions I've got to make are, are too many as it is. So it's been quite helpful. And some of my friends are really loving that because suddenly... Um, they get to choose everything we do, and I just go along with it, which um, probably wouldn't have been the case in the past. I think I've also gone from having really strong ideas and making quite snap decisions based on the confidence of my experience and things I've been involved with to wanting to slow everything down. One of my big frustrations in church life has been how slowly anything changes. And suddenly I'm like saying to people around me on my team, I'm not going to make a decision about that this week, or maybe not even this month. I'm going to slow it right down because I want to take the time and make sure that I'm really seeking God, hearing his voice and, and thinking it through and thinking about all the different angles I could look at that from. So I'm just slowing stuff right down, which is funny when you obviously have come through in a place where you found that really frustrating because now I know how annoying I am to everyone around me. So you have to live with knowing that people are frustrated with you because you're not going to go as fast as they want you to go or for a million other reasons probably as well. I think one of the things is I've gone from caring about my specific area to caring about everything. So when I, even the example of the working two days a week for my local church, I care about social action. And there's a few other things I care about as well, but there's a whole lot of things I don't care about at all because they're not my area. And I just want to know that I'm doing well in my area. But with Jubilee Plus and being the primary leader, now I, I care about it all. All of it matters to me. Um, apart from the sandwiches, obviously. Um, part of that is that I think about it all the time. And I, if you'd asked me two years ago, do you love Jubilee Plus? Is it on your mind a lot? Do you want it to do well? Tell, tell me how passionate you are about it. I think I would have said, I, I absolutely love it. I adore it. I, I want it to do well. It's on my mind. It's not something I switch off from. It's not a nine to five. Of, you know, all these things. But again, nothing had prepared me for how much it's now on my mind all the time. So if I wake up in the middle of the night, it's Jubilee Plus I'm thinking about. If I suddenly remember um, someone I needed to email, it's typically it'd be Jubilee Plus where I'm like, I, I needed to do that thing. If I'm taking some time off and, and in those times of you know, trying to free your mind of it all, if I have a creative idea that pops out of nowhere, it's about Jubilee Plus. Even at things like this, I think I find myself in worship and I'm like trying to, you know, Jesus, you're wonderful, you're amazing. Oh, did I do that thing I was supposed to do for the Jubilee Plus team? Or have I, oh, I promised someone I'd do this and I didn't do it. And that has become a lot um, just more than it ever was when I was just on the team. Um, I feel like I live and breathe it, I dream about it. I think the worst thing about this was... Um, Every year we run a conference, the Churches That Change Communities Conference, and it's in November. Last year, I had a dream about it all going horribly wrong in March. And I was like, why am I dreaming about this in March when the conference isn't even until November? But it's because the way you carry it, it's, it's there. It's in your conscious, it's in your subconscious all the time. Um, and I think what's been difficult about that and a surprise to me is realizing that often you're around people who just don't carry it the way you carry it. So I've got an amazing team. 
They're brilliant. I love them. Each one gifted in their own way. Each one bringing their own character, their own skills. But most of them are working maybe five hours to seven hours uh, to ten hours a week for Jubilee+. Plus. And you see, it's not so much even about the number of hours they're working, but that illustrates to you it's not the primary thing in anyone else's life. So other people have other jobs, uh, families and particular situations that are at the forefront of their mind. And so I have to keep reminding myself, oh no, the reason they haven't done that at 11 o'clock at night, and I did, is because they're not carrying it the way. I mean, probably I shouldn't be doing it at 11 o'clock at night either, but what I'm saying is, you get the difference. It's just a different way of responsibility. Um, I've noticed that, for, and this is a really good thing, it's less about me and more about the team. So I didn't realise how much it was all about me before, but... I think when something's your area, when you've got things you're particularly responsible for, you're very concerned with things like, well, I was anyway, am I fulfilled? Am I doing a good job in my area? Is my area looking good? Probably in comparison to other people's as well, if I'm honest with you. I'm sure you're all much more godly than me, but, you know, that's where I was at. And, and now, it's, the question isn't, am I fulfilled? It's like, is everyone on the team all right? It's, it's changed. It's, is everyone in the team um, in the right spot? Are they doing well? I don't mean as in I'm judging how they're doing, but I mean, are they okay? Are they feeling fulfilled? Are they feeling satisfied? Are they feeling like they're um, doing what God's called them to do and all that sort of stuff? And so I've become much more concerned about team than just about myself. And that's good, but there is also a pressure that comes to try and make sure everyone's all right. And, and trying in that to make sure that I'm not just sticking with my own maybe personality type. So trying to think through, what would someone who's more pastoral than me do if they said someone on their team um, was feeling overwhelmed or feeling stressed or stretched? I might, to be honest, naturally, I'd probably say, oh, I'm really sorry to hear that, but are you still going to meet the deadline? <laughs> I've realised it's not helpful to do that. So, <laughs> so yeah, it's a bit, some harsh lessons for me here. But so trying to think much more like, what does this person need me to do right now? And what would someone who's more pastorally gifted than me do right now? Because yes, I do want the person to meet the deadline, but I'd like them to do it because they want to and it brings them joy, not because I'm like some sort of dictator who's like lording it over them, which I think is quite an unbiblical way to lead anyway. I thought I'd jump in and say that before you do, Jeremy. But yeah. Um, I mentioned imposter syndrome. Living with my own internal stuff of imposter syndrome and having to cling more tightly than I ever have before to the fact that God has chosen me, God has called me, God has anointed me, that Jubilee Plus is his and not mine, that if it all goes horribly wrong under my leadership, then that's okay because it's not mine anyway. I mean, obviously, I'm not saying if I wreck it, but do you know what I mean? Like, if, if it doesn't thrive under my leadership, the way it did under Martin's, that that's still okay because God has called me, God's chosen me, God's anointed me. So trying to be much more open-handed with it, which has been one of the hardest lessons, but also trying to settle those internal voices of you're not good enough, you don't have the skills. And in fact, I've tried to start agreeing in some of that. You know, you don't have the skills. I don't have some of the skills. And yet God has put me here. And that's what he does, actually, isn't it? All through the Bible, we see God pick people who we would write off. We would think they're not going to manage to do that. Look what they've done in the past. Look at the mess they've made. Look at the mistakes they've made. And actually, God picks them anyway. And so trying to embrace weakness. I love it, the line in the song we sang earlier, um, that I labor on in weakness and rejoicing. 
And that, that line in that song has been really precious to me the last few months. I labor on in weakness and rejoicing, knowing that if I want to take seriously the word of God, he says his power is made perfect in my weakness. I think the, the fear of failure has been something that I've lived with in a new way. I think I've always feared failure, but I think now it's something that I'm carrying and constantly having to bring before the Lord and just say, I know you don't want me to live in fear of failure. And I know I might fail, and that's all right, but actually failure is okay, isn't it? It's not the worst thing that could happen. But I don't want to live in fear of it. I want to... It doesn't mean I'm living with some blind hope that everything's going to go perfectly. It means I'm just living with the hope that I, I belong to Jesus. He is mine, I am his. And actually, ultimately, that's all that matters. And the rest of it just needs to be silenced. And so I've had this real sense in the last few months that my fears are no match for the power of Jesus. And so I've been trying to consciously downsize them in his presence as a kind of daily thing that I'm bringing my fears before him and saying... I don't want to magnify them. I want to downsize them in your presence, God. But what I've found is, without doing that, my fears, my doubts, my weaknesses, all of it gets magnified. All of it gets magnified. And not just internally, but actually other people can see it more clearly. They can see it more clearly. And, and mostly they see it and they want to come alongside and help, and that's wonderful. But we're all human, and we all do sometimes say unhelpful things, and some people want to tell you your weaknesses just because they do. And so, again, just keeping short accounts with God, not letting that stuff stick, not letting it kind of pierce your heart, but actually just keep coming before God and saying, God, I need to give this to you. A couple of other things quickly that um, have been found hard. So I've kind of, a lot of that's been some internal, some from other people. And then there's been the spiritual aspect. I don't know why I didn't think of this but it should have been obvious to me that I would face more intense spiritual warfare the moment I took on the leadership of Jubilee Plus. And actually, circumstances in my life that have been spiritual warfare kicked into gear almost immediately as I took on the leadership of Jubilee Plus. Actually, I could count the days between Martin laying hands on me and anointing me with oil and transferring the leadership from him to me. And then the devil attacking me in one of the areas of my life that's most precious to me, which is friendships. And just the attack that came, it knocked me off my feet, emotionally speaking. And it knocked me off my feet emotionally at a time when I was like, I don't know what to do when I can't, I can't be off my feet physically, so to speak. I've got to keep going because I now lead this thing and I can't just sit out. I can't bench myself. I can't, you know, I mean, obviously you can take rest, you can, you can do things. But I found that I couldn't just bench myself in the way I would have done in the past. You know, when Martin and I were writing our book, A Church for the Poor, I went through something very difficult back then. That was in 2017. And so Martin was like, I'm going to write this chapter that you were supposed to be writing at the minute. I'll take it off you. When you're the primary leader, no one's there to take it off you. So you've got to keep going. And it's actually, even just last week, I was praying about this and I felt God say to me, I've been building resilience into you. And that is not something I particularly wanted to have to learn because typically you learn resilience in warfare but it is the grace and mercy of God to me that he's building it in gradually bit by bit strengthening me a bit like we've heard about this morning but also in the middle of the spiritual warfare has been God's work on my character I think this last 15 months has felt like the most intense season of God saying there's this thing I want us to work on and there's this thing I want us to work on and there's this thing and he is so gentle Aren't you grateful for that? I'm so grateful that he is gentle. But there have been times in the last 15 months where I've said to God, 
I, please, I need a break. I can't handle the amount of work we need to do on my character. It feels overwhelming. It feels too much. It's too hard. And God in his grace, you know, you have periods of respite and then he comes back, doesn't he? And he whispers, let's go again with that thing. So I think I would say that I found it spiritually tough. I found it emotionally and mentally tough. I found it, um, what is it? There's something, I can't remember where it is in the Bible where the Apostle Paul says there was um, fighting without and fears within. And that really has been my experience of this last 15 months. It's felt a bit like fighting outside of me and around me and then fears within me. But in the middle of all of that, there has been this incredible joy of knowing the calling of God and relying on God in ways that I never have had to before. I didn't realize before I took on the leadership of Jubilee Plus how much I'd been coasting through my work life. And I mean working for a church. Because I'd done the same stuff for quite a long time. I didn't realize this and I wasn't consciously, I never would have spoken like this. But I didn't really think that I needed God. In fact, before I took on the leadership, or before I knew I was going to take on the leadership of Jubilee Plus, the truth is I can't really remember the last time I prayed for God's help in my working life. I think that's awful, but I hadn't even noticed it. Isn't that funny how we, just, we can just trundle along in life and not even notice? Because the truth is there were parts of my job before I took on leading Jubilee Plus that I could have done in my sleep, standing on my head, every which way you could imagine I, I would have been able to do them because I was so experienced in them that I'd stopped asking God for his help or his anointing or anything. And I don't know, maybe I'm the only person who does that, but in case any of you have ever done that, I thought I'd, I'd just be honest with you and share it. So there's been this real preciousness of coming before God and saying, actually, I can't do this without you. And, and I don't think there's a single bit of it I can do without you. I feel like I've had to throw myself on God in ways that I probably should have been doing for years, but hadn't been doing. So there's been this real preciousness in my relationship with the Lord where just it's, it's deeper and richer and more beautiful, actually, than it ever has been in my 20-something years as a Christian. I think it's 29 years as a Christian. And so that's, that's been, yeah, just so incredibly precious, the digging deep into God. And I love this. I just read this yesterday, actually, um, in the NIV, in 2 Corinthians 3, uh, verse 5, it says, our competence comes from God. And I wish I'd read that 15 months ago, actually, because it probably would have been quite helpful then. But actually, it's true, isn't it? Our competence, our sufficiency in the ESV, it comes from God. So some of the things that I've done to kind of help me through this season have been things like I've changed almost all of my daily routines. I've changed all of my habits. I've, you know, the fact is that if even Jesus needed to get away and draw away and spend time with the Father, then obviously I do too. If he needed to do that, the very Son of God, then of course we all need to do that too. So actually I've changed a whole load of things. My spiritual disciplines have completely changed. In that I am not a very naturally disciplined person. And for most of my 29 years as a Christian, I haven't had like an hour a day set aside time with God. I've, I've tended to do about 10 or 15 minutes most mornings in a bit of a rush while I'm doing something else. And then every couple of weeks get away to a place called Ashburnham near where I live and spend time in the woods. And it was a bit like filling up your tank with petrol and then driving it down to empty and then filling it up again and then driving it down to empty. And... I'm not sure whether that's wrong or right, as in I've been encouraged more recently over the last few years that actually God has made us all different. And if we've been praying for God to change something about us for 20 years and he hasn't, maybe we could assume he likes us just the way we are, someone said to me. And I found that really helpful and really releasing. 
for a season, but actually for this season, I can't do it. For this season, I have to daily be drawing my strength from the Lord. I have to daily be in his presence. But it's not just the consistency of my prayer life that's changed. It's also the content of it. So I have um, found that I have to now spend a lot of time just focusing on Jesus and just praying about my relationship with him and not letting myself pray about everyone else I'm involved with. So I've set aside time in my working day, which is obviously easier if you work in, Christian, in a Christian organization, but I've set aside time in my working day to pray about work because what I found is that otherwise work was dominating my prayer life. And I was losing Jesus because I was concerned about this person and that person. And all good things to be concerned about, this activity, fundraising here, you know, all that sort of stuff. But I've, I've needed to change the content of my prayer life so that it is much more, I'm going to spend time, Jesus, worshipping you. And we're going to talk about me and you a lot more than I am going to talk to you about anything else. Um, I still obviously want to pray for friends and things like that. But I've just felt this need to shift my, my prayer life so it is much more about what, what the Lord is wanting to say to me and what he's wanting to do in me, and it's much more about me and him. Um, I've also, though, changed all my other routines. So um, if you'd asked me two years ago, or it, to be honest, even a year and a half ago, uh, what my typical bedtime was, it would have been between 12, midnight, and 1 in the morning, sometimes 2 in the morning. My getting up time would have corresponded with my going to bedtime, and I was someone who used to always snooze my alarm clock, even in my sleep. I actually bought one of those alarm clocks with bells on top, you know, the old-fashioned ones, and put it on the other side of the room. It took me three nights to learn to sleep through it because my routines were, like, all over the place. And, uh, again, I think partly because of not having kids, I've never had that kind of... Some of you are like, wow, I wish I could sleep in, but I've got these human alarm clocks. But for me, because I haven't had that... So one of the things I've done is that now most evenings I will go to bed by 10 o'clock, definitely lights out by half past 10, and my alarm goes off at 6 a.m. every day except Saturday. And I still snooze it, but I don't snooze it for two hours. It's more like I snooze it for 20 minutes now. But just changing that routine, and that actually has changed everything. And I think with the mental and emotional tiredness, that's one of the reasons I'm not physically tired as well, because I don't think I could be doing what I'm doing if I didn't have that routine of getting to bed, getting an early night, um, early compared to what I used to get, and then getting up in the mornings. And also, my spiritual disciplines would go out the window if I couldn't do the early mornings. So they're all kind of linked to each other. But another thing is, I now exercise almost every day before work. I don't like exercise. I'm not a big fan of it. I, I tried to do couch to 5K, and I, I just I don't like running. Um, but I found something I like, which is Joe Wick's PE for kids. And so literally, I do 20 minutes, Joe Wick's PE for kids. It's all on YouTube, and um, other exercise providers are available, um, and slightly less irritating. Um, <laughs> but I, just, I do that before work now. And it's really funny. So for years and years, I've said uh, to people, I'm not a morning person. In fact, this might be outrageous, but I've never had a job where I've had to start at 9 o'clock. So I've never started work at 9 o'clock. I've always just stumbled in sometime between 10 and 11. And I still make up my hours and I still work hard. And no one would question whether I was working what I'm supposed to be doing. But I just don't want to do it at 9 o'clock in the morning. And I always used to just... There have been jokes about it around in my church for years. You know, I'd get there at... Maybe I might get there at like 9.45 and people would be like, oh, something happened to you. In fact, in my secular job, I used to go in between 10 and 11, and my colleagues, if I ever came in before 10, would say, oh, do you wet the bed? Um, <laughs> and 
but I could get away with it because I, I didn't have to be there and I, I had flexible working. And I always just said, yeah, yeah, but my brain doesn't kick in. You don't want me here at nine. My brain doesn't work. Turns out, if your alarm goes off at six and you've got a good night's sleep and you then spend time with God and you exercise, your brain actually might even work at 8 a.m., let alone 9 a.m. So this has been a revelation for me. Um, I've completely changed my diet. So I had a really, really unhealthy diet. Um, partly that's upbringing as well, but... Um, for me, I'd never cooked broccoli and I'd never cooked peas until the pandemic. Um, people were quite shocked like that. I was shocked how easy they are to cook. I had no idea. <laughs> if someone had told me, I'd have probably had a healthier diet a long time ago. But I'm, I'm eating more healthily. And instead of just eating stuff out of tins and stuff out of the freezer, um, I still like all that food, by the way, so I'm not, nothing against that. But I've changed my diet, changed my spiritual disciplines. I pray at work, for work. I've also um, got coaching. So I've realised that there's a whole load of stuff I don't know and I need help. So I've got coaching. I've got um, actually three coaches. So two are a couple who are coaching me together, um, helping me with my own well-being, priorities, uh, my spiritual well-being, um, and helping me run my diary more effectively than I currently do. Uh, that's early days. Uh, but they're helping me with that. And then I've got someone who's helping me more with management and organisational structure, and is asking me difficult questions about um, why, why we do some of the activities we do, and have I thought through why we should do them, and often I'm trying to answer, and when I can't answer, I realise there's something I need to do here, and he's helping me and giving me some skills in that. So I've looked to people who are further on by some considerable margin than I am, and I'm trying to learn everything I can from them. Um, I'm also having counselling. So I didn't get counselling specifically um, because of taking on the role of Jubilee Plus. I started seeing a counsellor actually five and a half years ago. But in the last year, I've gone back into counselling um, every week. And I'm not going to carry it on forever. In fact, I don't think I'll carry it on weekly for much longer. But it's all been about helping me be more self-aware, helping me to understand what causes me to react badly when I react badly, what are my triggers, what are the things that might mean I'm not as kind to someone as I should be, where is that coming from a place, like wounded places in me, and get healing for it, basically, and work through it. And this is some of the stuff that God's been putting his finger on. It hasn't been all about, oh, your character's really bad here. Some of it's been, you're really wounded here. And actually, your wounds hurt other people. So you need to know what's driving you in some of your bad reactions so that you can actually be operating from a place of wholeness yourself, but also then not hurting other people with the hurts you've got, if that makes sense. So I'm a big advocate of counselling, of becoming as self-aware as we can be. Friends and prayer support have been vital. Uh, that's probably an obvious one, but actually just making sure I'm getting good quality time with friends, but also that I've got prayer support. So even like when I come somewhere like this, so on Monday I've got a group of about 20 people, uh, 20 people who aren't necessarily close friends of mine, but I know they pray. So I basically went to about 20 people in my church and said, I know you pray, I know you're kind of known as an intercessor, would you be willing to get, be part of a WhatsApp group where I'm going to text you where I'm going and what I'm doing? And would you just pray for me? And so I, on Monday, text them and I said to them, I'm hosting a meeting. Um, it's the first time I've hosted a Christ Central meeting. So will you pray for that? Will you, I'm doing a seminar. Will you pray? So you've all had prayer because I've asked them to pray for you guys who are here. Just to have that support and know that I'm covered, particularly because of the spiritual warfare aspect as well. Um, I'm also, I think I would say, learning to um, depend 
um, on God and on the Holy Spirit more, but also in terms of trusting my gut instincts. So part of what's been a joy in this is realizing that God sometimes, often actually, just gives us these nudges where we know something's the right way to go or the wrong way to go. And actually learning to trust that has been something that's been really, really good. Um, I've said about learning um, from people who've done, who've gone further, but also I'm trying to learn from people who have built what I want to build, if that makes sense. So there's a lot of people, you can listen to a whole load of people talk about stuff. I mean, to be honest, you're listening to me talk about it now, but actually what I want to know is who's built what I want to build, because if they've done it, then I think I want to learn from them, because I know they're not just talking about it, but they've got a track record and they've done it. And then the final thing... I'd just say is that's, that's been a bit of a joy and a challenge, but it's helping me to grow in my own leadership and to deal with these things that have kind of been a shock of leadership, has been to delegate more. Now, I've historically been a pretty horrendous delegator. I'm, I'm someone who, you know, on all the uh, personality profiles, I usually score zero for teamwork. It's, it's really bad, but I like to be on a team if I've got a distinct role and I can just get on with it on my own. I'm not sure that's really teamwork, um, but... <laughs> But that's, that's what suits me best. And obviously, I can't, and neither do I want to, operate like that anymore. So Craig Groeschel, who's an American pastor who does a leadership podcast, he says, if someone can do something 50% as well as you can, let them do it. I don't like that at all, let me just say that. I would, be, I would rather... Um, I was talking to a church leader a couple of days ago, and he said, no, no, I've always heard, if someone can do it better than you, let them do it. And I'm like, yeah, that sounds good. I was like, I'd be all right if someone can do it 95% as well as you can, then let them do it. But Craig Rochelle says 50%. And what I'm learning is that actually in letting go, uh, surprise, surprise, it's where you see other people flourish, isn't it? It's where you see other people thrive. And when you realize, oh, maybe I don't need to get burnt out because other people can do stuff. And, and often they, are, they do turn out to be better than I am at it as well. But yeah, so hopefully some of that's helpful. Um, it was a lot more of my problems than it was my solutions, but um, I'm learning and I'm on a journey and I hope some of that's helpful. I'm really happy to take questions. Um, you can ask me any awkward questions you like and I think we'll turn off the recording though at this point, won't we, if whoever... I'm just saying that for the purposes of... I think we'll, we'll record it but not use it. Okay. If that, if that's, yeah, just in case you say something that's blindingly brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> We probably won't record the questions and put that out. But we want to hear the questions. So please, if you've got a question, put your hand up. I'll come to you, and then we can hear it on the mic. Nice question. Dan, you're making me work. Thanks, Jeremy. Hi, Dan Silk from Silk Life Food Bank in Macclesfield. Uh, good to meet you. Um, you mentioned about um, taking time in your working day to pray um, for work-related matters and that enhanced your personal prayer life. I think that's really spoken to me today. Thank you for that. Um, do you find, though, that there's still crossover when you do that, that actually when you come to personally pray, you still find it almost like trying to, to get in to pray for the, for the work as well? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think it's something that I've had to cultivate. And, and it, probably that's the thing that I've worked hardest at in the last 15 months, to be honest, is 
so I always start my prayer time worshipping Jesus and trying to get my eyes fixed on him. But yeah, I mean, you know, thoughts come in, don't they? And so what I try and do, I learned this from a friend of mine, is just have a notepad to hand and I write stuff down so that I can remember to pray for it later or I can remember to think about it or email the person or deal with it later. But yeah, I do find it crowds in. But I find knowing that I've got the dedicated time when I'm going to pray for work, activities and people, it also means I don't have to then feel like, oh, I must do that now. It gives me that freedom to do it. I think uh, what I would say as well, because obviously for those of you who maybe don't work for churches and you think, well, how could I apply that in work? I, I think I started out just trying to compartmentalize my prayer time. So starting with worship and starting with making sure it's me and Jesus first and then saying I won't. So say you've got an hour, saying the first 45 minutes is going to be just whatever Jesus wants to say to me and me praying about things in my own life, my own character, the things he's highlighting and all that sort of stuff, and just getting lost in worshipping him. And then the last 15 minutes could be praying about work or people who are associated with work or whatever. So I found that quite just a helpful way that I think could apply to anyone, even if you're not working for a church or a Christian charity. Yeah, Rob Horn from um, White, Whitehaven Church in Cumbria. Um, uh, so one thing, I think you've touched on this, Natalie, already, and I'm, I'm hoping the answer might be in your book that, you've, that I've just bought from the, from the bookstore. Um, well done. So the question, the question is, um, do you feel, and, and obviously I think there might be implications for this for us as church leaders, for any church leaders in the room, um, do you feel that you have been held back either in, a, in your secular work or in your church work because of the culture that you've been brought up in and the behaviours that that might have led to you to be dis- displaying? I probably would say I, I don't personally feel like I've been held back, but it's because I wasn't trying to get anywhere. So do, do you know what I mean? Like I, I wasn't like I was aspiring to anything that I've not been able to uh, reach because the things that I'm doing aren't things I would have ever imagined doing. So in that sense, I don't feel held back. I think what I have felt is that perhaps there have been times, like I said, people have said to me in the past, you're not a leader. And I think that's often come from a place of the fact that I'm, I don't look like a lot of leaders around me and I don't lead in the same way that other people do. And I think every, um, whether it's a church or a secular organisation or whatever, we, we have what we think leadership looks like and it's sometimes hard to see outside of that and to break out of it. But I guess the fact that I'm in leadership means that I haven't been held back in that I think my church leader in Hastings took a real gamble on me, um, probably at that point not knowing if he thought I was a leader or not, but bringing me on his leadership team anyway. I think um, as well, though, uh, uh, the bigger thing for me has been realising that I've done leadership training thinking it equipped me for leadership. And I think it taught me brilliant things like about the doctrine of Christ and things like that and things I'm, I'm really glad I did it. But it didn't teach me anything about handling conflict or how to lead a team when every member of the team has a different idea that pulls in a different direction or um, how to sit in a budget meeting particularly and, and what things you should, what sort of questions should you be asking if you're responsible for that budget but you don't really know how to run a budget. And so for me it's been, I've noticed that's where the gap's been um, but obviously anyone from any class or background would be on the same leadership training, but it might be that others have that, those skills more naturally from their schooling or from their family life or whatever, and I didn't have those skills, so I feel like I am playing catch-up a little bit with some of, some of those things. So sort of a, an answer, maybe. 
I feel like Jeremy's my runner, which feels really, really quite um, biblical, actually, isn't it? Uh, you know, servant leadership. Thanks, Jeremy. Yeah, can I just ask, what structures have you put in place to make yourself accountable? Yeah, yeah, that's a brilliant question. So, yeah, um, I alluded to that, I think, partly with... Uh, but I skipped over it because of time. I didn't linger on any of the points as long as I might have done. The coaching, the counselling and the friends. So I think in the coaching capacity, I'm being asked why I'm making all sorts of decisions. Like, I've given the people coaching me real permission to just speak in and say, you know, why are you making that decision? Or why do you think you need to be as busy as you're making yourself? What's driving you in this way or that way? Um, I've got accountability in terms of counselling, in that that would be a space where I'd be talking very openly about any lies I'm believing about God, any kind of attitude problems that I think I've got. And, and counselling actually gives a really safe space for that because I think it's difficult in church life because I could have spoken to someone in my local church, but if I'm in leadership of them, that can be a bit tricky, can't it? Because you just you don't know whether it's going to cause them any sort of problems. Um, I have accountability in terms of friends. So I've got several very good friends who I've said, I want you to ask me anything. We've talked about particular things. Um, we've sort of joked, you know, that if I ever start going, you know, like, hey, I'm kind of a big deal around here, I want them to give me a good slap and take, take me down a peg or two, you know. And I've said to them, you can ask me any question about what's going on in my life. I have accountability with my church leader and his wife. Uh, to be honest, I feel like I've got quite a lot of accountability because I've got quite a lot of people asking me, about different things. So my church leader uh, is my line manager in my local church job, but he starts every line management meeting we have now asking me about everything across the board, not just my local church. And I think I've got accountability on the Christ Central team in the, you know, there's accountability structures being brought into that in particular, but also I think a place where even like last week when we met together, Jeremy's like, let's talk about how we're actually doing. And each person talks about how they really are doing. So yeah, I feel... Like that, that is vitally important, but I, I do feel like I've got quite a lot of coverage in that respect. Um, yeah, I don't know if there's, if there's anything you think I'm missing, though, just, just feel free to say. <laughs> no, ge genuinely, I'm saying that genuinely. If you had something in mind, kind of, that you, you specifically thought of, although Jeremy's run away from you now, so you'll have to tell me privately <laughs> afterwards. Um, have you any advice on creating healthy boundaries within leadership, um, particularly in terms of time management? I'm, as a new leader in church, quickly discovering that my phone pings constantly and I'm learning how to balance that priority between my home family life and my church commitments and responsibilities. Um, I think I am probably in the same place as you in that I'm learning how to put boundaries in place. I think the biggest thing that's changed for me, though, probably is that I didn't think boundaries were that important a year and a half ago, and now I suddenly do. And I think, actually, to be honest, as a single person, because I haven't got a husband or kids saying, we never see you, or anything like that, I haven't got those kind of other factors that would bring boundaries in for me, which is why I'm getting help from this couple specifically to talk about things like how I manage my time, which the answer at the minute, to be honest, is badly. Um, but they're holding me accountable for that. They are um, pushing me into making better decisions. Uh, things like taking holidays and stuff like that, I've not been great at that, so trying to get better at that. Um, I think in terms of not being on my phone, like with emails and things, I am definitely a work in progress. I find it very difficult to switch off on a day off. 
I am trying to make sure I have one day a week where I don't check my emails, where I don't look at anything. But uh, trying is the honest answer to that. And like I say, working with people. So I, I guess my advice would be get people around you who will push you to set boundaries and then hold you accountable for whether you are or not. It's so good, isn't it? Thank you to Natalie. Thanks, Matt. So the, uh, the beauty of us being around for two or three days is that we're not platform speakers or seminar speakers, we're friends. So have a chat to us, have a chat to Natalie. Don't feel you have to rush off, but this seminar is finished.